The case of Joe Aridy is perhaps the most flagrant violation of rights in the history of American capital punishment and ranks among the saddest chapters in the annals of the U.S. criminal justice system. Beyond its obvious themes about the trampling of rights of the accused and the Wild West way of conducting law, the story of Jer Aridy is so much more. From the treatment of the mentally handicapped to the abuse of the fundamental rights that all Americans take for granted today, the Arity case is almost like a harbinger of what was to come. Supreme Court cases like Miranda and Atkins would have saved Joe Arity today from the wrongful prosecution he faced back then. But unfortunately for him, those decisions would come a few decades too late. Joe Arity's story begins not at the turn of the 20th century when he was born, but actually in the early 90s. Robert Persky, a lifelong advocate and attorney who fought for the rights of the mentally disabled in prison, received a letter from a close friend and sociologist one day describing the contents of a disturbing poem. The poem, titled The Clinic, by Marguerite Young, told how a prison warden wept bitterly as a death row inmate was consumed with playing with a toy train just moments before his execution, completely oblivious that the end was near. Intrigued and appalled by the subject of the poem, Persky made it his mission to validate if the prisoner in the poem was a real-life person or not. Over the course of several years, Persky made trips through the Rocky Mountain states of Colorado and Wyoming, searching archives and libraries far and wide to see if the mystery prisoner, in fact, lived. The result of that investigation proved not only that the inmate in the poem turned out to be Joe Arity, but that his story was even more tragic than that poem could ever put into words. Arity entered this world in April 1915 when he was born to two recent immigrants from Syria, then known as the Ottoman Empire. His parents had escaped their home country for a better life in the United States. His father brought his wife to the city of Pueblo, Colorado to find a job at one of the area's many steel mills. It was here that his mother gave birth to their son. However, even from an early age, it was pretty apparent that Arity was different from other children his age. Though he did not speak English, he spoke little in his parents' native tongue. During those early years, Arity was known to keep to himself and not bother anyone, no matter how hard people tried to communicate with him. His parents did send him to elementary school when he was about four years old, but that did not end well for him. After just a year in school, the principal approached his father and said that Joe was just incapable of learning. From that point forward, Joe would stay home and never go to school again. For the next several years, Joe pretty much kept to himself. As his mother reported, he often enjoyed long walks around the neighborhood, murmuring to himself along the way. Joe also liked to hammer nails into wood or make mud pies when not out for a walk. All these things he did alone. Joe continued his solitary lifestyle for four years until his father lost his job. Probably due to stress from having to watch over his son at home, his parents decided to have him committed to a sanitarium. With support in the form of written affidavits from their neighbors, Joe's parents successfully applied to have Joe become a ward of the state. Back then, sanitariums were places where people with severe mental and physical disabilities were left in the state's care. Because back then, the general attitude was that people with these kinds of disabilities needed to be kept away from society at large. These institutions were often horrible. However, there's no mention that Joe suffered abuse at the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives in Grand Junction. During his first stay, 
the court wanted to see just how severe Joe's disabilities actually were. The doctors and psychologists there subjected him to many tests. Not surprisingly, he did not perform well on them. During the numbers portion of the test, he could not say half of the first ten numbers. He also did not understand the concept of colors. When presented with the color red, he said it was black. He performed equally poor for other colors. The examinations also consisted of a series of free response questions. Doctors found that, though Joe could answer in simple yes or no responses, any questions that involved more than that he was incapable of comprehending. When asked what the difference between stone and glass was, what the days of the week were, or the difference between a fly and a butterfly, he had no response. Joe would just sit in silence and stare blankly at his doctor. Once all the testing was completed, the medical team found that he had an IQ of just 46 and was severely mentally disabled. Despite these findings, after just a short nine months there, Joe's father sorely missed him and asked that he be returned to their care. The state obliged, and for the next several years, Joe continued his usual routine that he had done during his developmental years. However, his unsupervised walks around the neighborhood and his time at home would end at the tender age of 14, when a local probation officer caught a gang of teenagers raping Joe. Nothing is known if anything happened to Joe's attackers, but what is known for sure is what happened to Arity after this incident. The probation officer was furious that such a clearly disabled person could be allowed to roam free in the community, and it was clear to him that his parents did not care to supervise or care for him. Though this was the first time his attackers had been caught red-handed, it was a local rumor that attacks like this happened frequently. The probation officer arrested Joe for his own safety, and then he petitioned the court to have Joe recommitted back to the facility he was in when he was 10 years old. In his petition, the probation officer stated that Joe was the most severe case of mental retardation he had ever encountered. The court agreed and had him committed back to the same home he had been at before. While staying at the home for a second time, the staff there found that Joe could not comprehend most of what they told him. Due to his disability, he could not perform manual labor even though he physically could have done so. He also had no mental capacity to attend class or learn anything taught at the schoolhouse on the grounds. Instead, the staff assigned Joe to work in the kitchen. Mrs. Bowers was the worker assigned to watch over Joe all day, and she would later describe just how limited his cognitive function really was. Mrs. Bowers described Joe as only having enough understanding to complete short and simple tasks. Washing the dishes, mopping the floor, and doing other small chores were all he could do. While the staff might have thought that this would be Joe's life for the remainder of his time on Earth, Joe had other plans. Close to the home, there were a set of train tracks. Joe and some of his friends often watched men hitchhiking by riding the boxcars. It's unknown why exactly Joe left, since there's been no evidence of abuse or abandonment at the home. But no matter why, after seven years, Joe and a group of men would leave for good. After a few trial runs where Joe and another kitchen worker would leave and come back after a day, Joe and three other patients decided to leave the institution permanently. The men walked away from the institution and hopped on a train headed to Pueblo. The next day, they rode a train back to Grand Junction. Joe's last known sighting was August 13th, when the other patients he was with said that after arriving back in Grand Junction, he had wandered off by himself. For the next week, Arity's whereabouts were unknown. 
he became separated from his group of patients and walked barefoot and hungry into the camp kitchen of a railroad work crew on the morning of August 20th in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The kitchen staff took pity on him, and they gave him new clothes along with free food. In return, Joe had to wash the dishes for them. After six days of this arrangement, the crew had to move on to another work site even further from Cheyenne, and Joe could not go with them since he was not a paid employee. One of the workers took pity on him and drove him to the nearest rail yard where he could hop on another train. However, Joe would never make it on another train since later that same day, he was arrested for vagrancy by railroad detectives who turned him over to the Cheyenne Police Department. Unbeknownst to Arity, when he left Grand Junction on August 13th and arrived at the work camp in Cheyenne on the 20th, someone had committed a horrible murder in Pueblo, Colorado. During the night of Saturday, August 15th, 1936, an intruder broke into the home of the Drain family. The Drain sisters, Dorothy and Barbara, were asleep in their bed when the intruder broke into their room. The man began beating both the girls with a blunt object. After the assault, the man raped Dorothy, the 15-year-old sister, while Barbara, the 12-year-old sister, was left for dead. Miraculously, she survived her attack and was taken to the hospital, where she told police what had happened. As soon as Barbara gave her statement, police all over Colorado and surrounding states began looking for suspects. The police in Cheyenne, Wyoming, were also doing their part to aid in the manhunt. Sheriff George Carroll was personally interviewing all recently arrested suspects to see if they had any connection to the assault on the Drain sisters. During his first night in custody at the Laramie County Jail, Sheriff Carroll decided to interview him. When Sheriff Carroll discovered Arity had traveled through Pueblo on his way to Cheyenne, he immediately became a person of interest. What happened next on that faithful August night is lost to history. Only Sheriff Carroll truly knows what transpired. According to Sheriff Carroll, after just 90 minutes of questioning, Arity made a full confession to the rape and murder of Dorothy and the brutal beating of Barbara. According to Carroll, Joe claimed that he did it. Joe also said that he had committed the crime with a club. After this whirlwind confession, Sheriff Carroll contacted the Pueblo Police Department to inform them that he had the murderer in custody. However, this was a complete surprise to the Pueblo Police, since they too had another suspect in custody for the murder. According to the Pueblo Police Department, a man named Frank Aguilar was the prime suspect. Frank Aguilar was a day laborer from Mexico, whom the Drain sister's father had supervised for various work projects. Barbara had identified him as the attacker, and when police searched his home, they found an axe head with markings consistent with the attack. Though Frank adamantly denied anything to do with the assault and murder, he did say that he had never heard or seen of a Joe Arity in his life when questioned. Despite his statement, the Pueblo police chief Arthur Brady thought it appropriate to have Arity extradited to Pueblo to face justice for his role in the crime, but wanted some of his own men to interview Joe in Cheyenne. Despite what Arity did or did not say, he was the most hated man west of the Mississippi River by the morning. Shortly after calling Chief Brady, Sheriff Carroll called a local reporter about the purported confession. Soon, newspapers across Colorado, Wyoming, and surrounding states contained the details about the crime and confession. All eyes were on Arity at this point. Chief Brady's men arrived in Cheyenne the following day. Arity's confession continued from the previous evening. Sheriff Carroll said Joe changed his story five times, but finally told the truth. One of the details that changed was the weapon Joe allegedly used in the attack. 
During his first interrogation with Sheriff Carroll, he said he'd used a club. Now the sheriff was saying he confessed to using a hatchet. However, this detail had only been known by the Pueblo police detectives who had already arrested Frank Aguilar and recovered the hatchet head. During the morning confession, Joe made the first and only connection to Frank Aguilar. Though Joe at first claimed he was the only assailant, after the arrival of the Pueblo detectives, whenever he was asked who he did it with, he said, with Frank. Of course, in hindsight, through a modern lens, this confession is clearly preposterous. Joe simply did not have the mental capacity to form plans, much less a homicide. He also could only speak in up to two-word phrases at a time. Such phrases like, with Frank, fit perfectly with the fact that the police were spoon-feeding Joe the information needed to form the link to Frank Aguilar. This is because, since Aguilar at the time was not talking, this way they could get a confession that linked him to the physical evidence recovered from his home. Once Joe had confessed, Chief Grady had his men bring him back to Pueblo. The following day on August 28th, Chief Grady had Aridy reenact the crime at the Drain household. After this, they took him back to the police station, where a local pawn shop owner came into the station to make a statement after seeing his photo in the newspaper. Saul Khan, the pawn shop owner, said he had sold Aridy a pistol Friday, August 14th, the day before the homicide. However, Khan never produced any proof that he had, in fact, even sold a firearm, much less one to Joe Aridy. But even if he did, Aridy was not allowed to have money at the institution, and it's unclear how Joe could have gotten any money to begin with since he had never held down a job. Adding further confusion to the mix was the police bringing in Frank Aguilar to be identified by Aridy. When Joe saw Aguilar, he said, That's Frank, but Aguilar once again stated that he had never seen that man before. After this, a woman named Helen O'Driscoll, who was similarly attacked at home on August 23rd, came in to identify Aridy as her attacker. However, it soon became apparent that her testimony was inaccurate, since on August 23rd, Joe had been surrounded all day and night by witnesses at the railroad work camp in Cheyenne. Though Aridy would not be charged in connection with the assault on O'Driscoll, this was a harbinger of what was to come. After weeks and months of investigation, police began to piece together a series of related attacks and homicides that would ultimately fall upon Aguilar's shoulders. But for the time being, the police were focused on solving the most high profile of this recent string of attacks, the murder of Dorothy Drain. Though the Cheyenne police had apparently extracted a confession from Aridy, the Pueblo Police Department still wanted to get an admission on their own. For five days, Pueblo detectives questioned Aguilar day and night about the murder of Dorothy Drain. It was not until the morning of September 2, 1936, that Aguilar allegedly confessed after hours of interrogation that day. In an officer-prepared and typed statement, Pueblo detectives documented the confession that Aguilar made. Though Aridy was also in the room, detectives only asked him a handful of questions. In the confession, Detectives asked Aguilar pointed questions like if he had known Aridy and what role Aridy took in the attack. Interestingly enough, whenever questions about Aridy's involvement in the crime arose, Aguilar answered for him. Such a fact is known since Aridy answered just six questions during the hours-long interview and none of his questions were materially related to the crime. Another troubling fact was the prosecutor's statement after the confession was inked. He claimed that Aridy was an active and willing participant during the confession. 
However, with Erdi speaking so little during Aguilar's confession, one can cast doubt on that claim. One can also cast doubt on Erdi's signature on the confession itself. Though Aguilar had multiple witnesses signed beneath his mark, Erdi did not. Perhaps none of the witnesses in the room wanted to get charged with perjury in the future. But this is just speculation, and only those present know truly why they did not sign under Erdi's name. Aguilar himself would only cast doubt on the validity of the entire confession. He tried to recant it later, claiming that the warden had visited him and said some bad things would happen if he did not confess to the crime. Regardless of all the mystery and doubts surrounding this confession, the district attorney decided that it would suffice to be the confession for both of the men. A Colorado courtroom would have to determine whether the confession was coerced or not. Within three months of Aguilar's arrest, his trial began on November 27, 1936. Bolstering the shoddy confession was another statement made by the girl's father, Riley Drain. During his testimony, he claimed that in the time before the trial started, Aguilar had separately confessed to him the details of the crime. Mr. Drain said that Aguilar's story went as follows. After working for the day, he bought a pint of whiskey and got drunk. A friend of his awoke him and said that Aguilar needed to repay him some money. Aguilar then went with the unknown man to the area near the Drain household. Here, he met up with Joe Arity and committed the assault and murder. However, the father's testimony was contradicted by his own daughter. Barbara, the lone survivor of the attack, testified about what she saw and heard that night in their bedroom. When the prosecutor asked if she could point to the man that attacked her, she stood up, walked over to Aguilar, pointed at him, and said, that is the man. What's important to note here is that in this dramatic courtroom moment, Barbara made no mention of there even being a second man, much less Joe Arity being there. But that would not matter since the prosecution claimed they had physical evidence that linked Arity to their crime scene. On the Drain sisters' bed, numerous body and pubic hairs were left behind after the assault. Police collected all of these at the scene, and on that same day, hundreds of miles away at the Laramie County Jail, where Sheriff Carroll was interrogating Arity, the police there took head and chest hair samples from Joe. During the forensic expert's testimony, he claimed that after carefully analyzing all the hairs recovered, he found a single hair that matched the samples police gave him for Arity. Though the forensic techniques used to classify the hairs have since been discredited by modern forensic science, it is important to know that it was more than just the shoddy confession that would eventually seal Arity's fate. Because of the dramatic testimony and physical evidence police recovered, like the axe head, Aguilar changed his plea on the last day of the trial to not guilty by reason of insanity. However, neither the judge nor the jury found his claim believable, since the jury found him guilty that day and the judge sentenced him to death soon afterward. Once Aguilar had been convicted, it soon came out that other women had identified Aguilar as the man who had attacked them too. Consequently, there'd been a similar homicide just a few blocks away from the Drain household before Dorothy's murder. Pueblo police soon connected Aguilar to at least two other attacks. However, Aguilar would eventually be executed for the rape and murder of Dorothy Drain alone. It's unknown if police had known this information several months before, if it would have made a difference for Joe Arity. And more than likely, it would not have done anything to change the outcome. After Aguilar had been sentenced to death, Joe's lawyer requested he was granted a sanity trial. Because of the signed confession and hair evidence, 
Joe's lawyer thought that the only way to save his life would be if he were found insane. If the trial found that Joe was, in fact, sane, he would certainly be convicted and sentenced to death just like Aguilar. The stakes could not have been higher. Three separate state psychologists interviewed Aridy at length to prepare for the trial. Though each conducted an independent review, they all came to the same conclusion. Joe Aridy was severely mentally handicapped with an IQ of 46, but he was sane. These so-called medical professionals argued for a person to become insane. They at first had to demonstrate that they were at one time sane. Because Joe had always been this developmentally disabled, they argued that he had never had the opportunity to become insane. While the state psychologists might have considered Joe sane, the trial's purpose was to determine if Joe could tell right from wrong. When one reads through the court transcripts when Joe took the stand in his own defense, the evidence is clear that Joe barely understands his surroundings, much less right from wrong. When the prosecutor questioned him about what was going on, Aridy had no clue. He asked him questions like, Do you know what a hatchet is? Joe replied, No. Joe said his father was at home when he asked where his father was. When the prosecutor said his father was standing next to him, Joe simply replied, Uh-huh. When asked if he knew Frank Aguilar, he said he did not. It was clear from the 17 pages of court transcripts that Joe Arity had no idea where he was, what he was doing, and even the basic facts and circumstances of the case. Despite this damning testimony, the jury was left to deliberate on whether Joe was sane or not. After almost seven hours of deliberation, the jury came back and said they were deadlocked six to six on Aridy's sanity. After being ordered by the judge to continue deliberations at 9 p.m. that night, the jurors quickly came back with finding Aridy was sane at the time of the murder. Why the jury decided that he was sane is beyond comprehension. Even one of the psychologists said that though he was sane, Joe did not know right from wrong. However, the jury could have been swayed by the numerous police officers' testimony that Joe did seem normal when speaking to him. While normal might seem a bit of a stretch for someone who cannot even recognize their own father, the jury thought it best for Joe to fight for his life at trial. On April 12, 1937, Joe's five-day trial began. His defense attorney's strategy was simply to make this trial another insanity defense trial. He told the judge that he would call no witnesses or experts to testify on Joe's behalf and that he would start his defense after the prosecution had fully presented its case. The judge allowed the plan to proceed. The prosecution called the same three psychologists as well as an additional fourth one. The three original ones all claimed as before that Joe did not know right from wrong but stopped short of labeling him as insane. The fourth psychiatrist did label him as sane and knew right from wrong. The judge also got the opinion of Sheriff Carroll, who had conducted all the initial interviews with Joe. He said that because of his 30 years of law enforcement experience, that Joe was as sane as any other criminal he had interrogated. During the trial, the prosecution would call Sheriff Carroll to the stand four more times to question him regarding Aridy's confession, crime scene reenactment, and remorse. Sheriff Carroll made each of his statements without notes and with no written documentation stating that his ironclad memory sufficed. Joe's defense attorney did not call anyone to testify on his behalf. Despite this, what's interesting to note is that Dorothy's father did testify, and what he left out is quite essential. 
he talked about all the circumstances leading up to the attack and the discovery of his daughters. However, he did not mention trying to meet with Aridy like he did Aguilar, nor did he mention seeing him at all. Perhaps even more damning was the lack of the star witness to the attack, Barbara Drain. Unlike Aguilar's trial, Barbara refused to testify at Aridy's trial. She never gave a reason, but one can clearly read from her testimony at Aguilar's trial that she believed Aguilar and Aguilar alone committed these heinous crimes. If only the rest of the people involved with the case had a shred of the integrity this little girl did. But unfortunately for Joe Aridy, they did not. After just five days, the jury convicted him of rape and murder, with the judge sentencing him to die alongside Aguilar. Though Aguilar was quickly executed in August 1937, Joe would continue to sit on death row for two years as his lawyer fought to save his life. While on death row, the warden of the prison, Roy Best, quickly became Aridy's only friend in his whole life. Best felt pity for the young man and frequently allowed him privileges he did not give other inmates. For example, Best allowed Joe to visit his home, where he's said to have befriended his younger nephew and that his wife would make him homemade ice cream. Best also bought Aridy frequent gifts. Warden Best bought Joe coloring books, magazines, scissors to cut up the magazines, and a red toy car. However, Joe's most prized possession was the toy train he bought him for Christmas in 1937. Joe would play with that train all day and night, screaming things like, train wreck, train wreck, as his imagination soared far beyond his prison cell. Besides his defense attorney, Warden Best became one of Aridy's chief advocates and tried numerous strategies to spare his life. One of those strategies was petitioning the court for another insanity trial. The court agreed to it, but the Pueblo prosecutors kept fighting the warden and his defense attorneys every step of the way. Despite the intense backlash, the duo was able to secure six days of execution over the 18 months Aridy sat on death row. But as the pair ran out of avenues to plead for Aridy's life, they turned to the state superintendent, who served as the chief medical officer for all the sanitariums in Colorado. His written response to their pleas was that Aridy was as sane now as he was then and used the opportunity to lambaste people like Joe, instead stating that people as disabled as him should be sterilized. With all of their appeals running out, the Supreme Court ruled in a 4-3 to three vote not to hear any more stays for Aridy. Soon after, the governor of Colorado ordered Warden Bess that he was to execute Aridy on January 7, 1939. In preparing for his execution, the Catholic priest at the prison administered Joe's last rites to him. However, because Joe was so disabled, he gave him the last rites that the priest would give to a child. Each prayer the priest did with Joe had to be said two words at a time, the limit of Joe's language abilities. After giving him his last rites, Joe ate his last meal, the homemade ice cream the warden's wife had made that he had grown so fond of. Joe did not finish his ice cream and instead asked the guard to place the rest in the fridge so he could eat it later. While waiting for his impending execution, Aridy kept playing with his toy train, oblivious to the fate that soon awaited him. Warden Best spent these last few hours with him. Then it was time for the execution. As Joe walked to the gas chamber, Warden Best and Father Schaller, the prison priest, accompanied Joe into the seat. Joe appeared calm, 
and the warden held his hand while the guard strapped him into the chair. While he was being strapped in, Warden Best asked him what his vocation would be in the next life. It was common back then for inmates condemned to die to speak about what they would do after their death. Best asked if he still wanted to raise chickens, but after talking to the priest, Joe changed his mind and said now he wanted to play the harp. Warden Best smiled at the answer, and just as he did, the guards placed the black hood over his eyes. It was during this time that Joe showed his only sign of worry. However, Warden Best squeezed his hand tighter, and soon Joe smiled again. Warden Best said his goodbyes and left the chamber, leaving just Father Schaller. He too said his goodbyes and visibly wept as he left the chamber. With everyone else outside, the guards shut the door and executed Joe Arity on January 7, 1939, when he was just 23 years old. Perhaps Joe Arity's story would have been forgotten to time had it not been for the work of people like Robert Persky, who spent most of the 1990s documenting the case. After the release of his book, Deadly Innocence, in 1995, Arity's story became known nationwide. Soon, people came together to honor his memory in positive ways. The group soon became known as the Friends of Joe Arity, and the group started to campaign on his behalf. After enlisting the help of numerous volunteers, including the granddaughter of the defense attorney that sought to save his life, the Friends of Joe Arity were blessed when a Denver attorney named David Martinez became so moved by the story that he took up the case for a posthumous pardon in 2008. After two years of research into the case, Mr. Martinez prepared a 523-page appellation for a full pardon from the governor of Colorado. After submitting it in October 2010, the governor's office released a three-page media statement in January 2011 about the governor's decision to grant Joe Arity a full and unconditional pardon. Not only did the governor pardon Joe, but he agreed that he was factually innocent. The governor went on to say that had this case happened today, there would never have been a trial. Unfortunately for Joe, that came over 70 years too late. However, it did solidify not just the state of Colorado, but the United States as a whole to right the wrongs of the past. With his pardon now in hand, one can only hope that Joe Arity is playing his harp and raising chickens to his heart's content in the next life, looking down with a smile on his face, knowing that he now has so many friends that he never had in this world.